the 51st Psalm, we will read that psalm. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward part, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. And then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. May God bless to us today this portion of his word. In this 51st Psalm, we have recorded one of the great penitential Psalms of David. In it, uh, he has reference to his one great sin, the great sin of his life. We remember the story, how one spring afternoon as he walks on the rooftop of his palace, he spies a beautiful woman. He desires her, he possesses her, he commits adultery with her, and then it is found that she is with thee. Now he, in order to cover up, murders her husband by having him sent into the thick of the battle that the army is engaged in and having the, those around him withdraw from him so that he is killed. And then he marries the woman. And for a year he continues in this state. No one knows what he has done. But at the end of a year... The old prophet Nathan comes, makes his way into the king's presence, tells him a story about someone in the kingdom that has acted in a high-handed way, has taken from someone more inferior that which was the lower persons in a high-handed way and mistreated him. The king is enraged and he says, Who is the man? I will see that justice is done. And the old prophet points his finger right at David. Thou art the man. 
king falls on his face and says, Yes, I've sinned against Jehovah. And this psalm tells us what was going on within David's heart right at this point. Here's an elaboration of that one sentence in Second Samuel. I've sinned against Jehovah. David tells us just how he felt. We've entitled this The Backslider's Return. Many of you may feel that this is far removed from your situation as you sit here this morning. Others may feel that this is exactly suited to your needs. But I wonder if it's far removed from any of us, the lessons contained herein. You know, the term backslider expresses very vividly exactly what so many do. They slide back from a position that they had occupied spiritually. They had at one time walked with God, and now they have slid back into sin. This was David, the one of whom God said, This is the man after my own heart. There's none like him in all the nations. And now he has slid back. You know, when we look up the term backslider in the scriptures, we find there are two kinds of backsliding mentioned. There's the backsliding of the false professor, the one who professed to be a Christian, but knowingly or unknowingly was not. And so often today, when we run into a case that is supposed to be that of a backslider, actually that's the situation. The person really had nothing to slide back from. Or perhaps they had outward reformation of life. Perhaps they have slipped now into obvious sin. And yet at no time in their life, in spite of the fact that they were at one time a leader in the church, or at one time very active in the youth group, at one time they taught Sunday school, yet at no time in their life did they really experience in their heart the reality of the new birth, the reality of the union with God through Christ Jesus that the scriptures say a man must have to really be right with God. And so they backslid, but they backslid from nothing, really. Then again, you find the case in scripture of those who are true children of God, those who are true Christians, and yet who have so fallen away that they have lost all evidence within themselves and particularly to others of ever having been a Christian. And this is possible. And it's recorded. And we see it often. And yet there's all the difference in the world between these two situations. It's the difference between a person who is faded and a person who is dead. In the faith, in the swoon, there is the principle of life present. It's dormant, but it's there. And yet from the standpoint of what to do then? Here's the key. Whether it's a case of a swoon or whether it's a case of never having had life, the return is the same. The return is the same. You remember in one of the letters of, to the seven churches in the first part of the book of Revelation, where the one particular church where the membership has backslidden. 
is instructed how they are to come back. And it says, repent and do first works. The first works would speak of uh, their return being by the very means and steps by which they had first found the favor of God. Whether it be the case of a man who is a real Christian and he has slipped into awful sin as David had, or whether it be the case of a man who never really was a Christian, although at one time he was active in the church. The way back is the same. The way into the very presence and fellowship of God. So then let us turn to the psalm and let David bring home to our hearts the condition of each of us individually as we stay. As we look at this psalm, we see two divisions of it, two major divisions. First, we have David's prayer. He prays for certain things. Then we have David's promise, as he promises certain things. His prayer is for pardon, for purity, for the presence of God. As he starts out in uh, the first part of the psalm, he makes this prayer, and then he sums it up in the famous ninth through 12th verses, Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Here's a summary of his prayer. Let's look then at the prayer and at each of these uh, summarizations of it. First he prays for a pardon of guilt in verses 1 and 2 and in verse 9. It says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And in the ninth verse, Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. Here we have the prayer for the pardon of guilt. And the need is expressed in three separate Hebrew words here, used to describe his offense. Transgressions, iniquity, sin. As he says, uh, blot out my transgressions, he has thinking of his offense as a crossing of a boundary. That's what the idea of transgression implies. As one has gone beyond certain limits that he was not to trespass. And he views them here as separate acts, my transgressions. As he says, oh, when I think of time after time after time when I went over the boundaries that you had set. I went against your commandments. I crossed over them. Then again, he speaks of it as sin. Sin would have to do with the missing of the mark, the falling short of a goal or a purpose. And here, as he uses the singular, my sin, he's lumped all of his individual acts of transgression into one great unity, a grim unity, and he looks at it, and he says that, he must be washed from this grim guilt that is attached to him as a robe is polluted. And he says, oh God, when I look at my life, I see that I've missed the mark. I see that I failed to be what you meant for me to be. 
I have not lived up to the standard that you've set for men. You remember the young lawyer that approached the Lord Jesus and he said, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Christ said, What says the law? How these say? He said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, thy neighbor as thyself. Christ said, That's the standard. This do, and thou shalt live. But David said, I haven't done it. My guilt is such I can no wise approach the standard. And he goes on to picture his sin as iniquity. And this word iniquity brings before us the root of his sin, depravity of nature, alienation of heart. And as we look at these words that he's used to describe what he's done, we see here the essence of sin and the origin of sin. The essence of sin is rebellion against God. Against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Not that he hadn't sinned against others. He had sinned against his against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah, her husband. He had sinned against his own family. He had sinned against the nation that he was the head of by plunging himself, the leader of it, in such a situation. He had sinned against the church of God as he gave the enemies of God opportunity to blaspheme the cause of God, opportunity to mock it, to laugh at it. Here's the man that was your leader. Here's the great psalmist. And here he slips into such sin. He's a hypocrite. He had sinned against many. And yet he locates his sin here as if it were only against God, against thee, the only, because behind and beyond and above all others that he had wounded, there was God. And compared to them, his offense against God was such that he felt like it were the only offense practiced. Against thee, the only. And he said, it's rebellion. It's my will against your will. I knew better. And yet I went ahead and did it. He doesn't locate it just in breaking God's law. He doesn't say I went beyond and stopped there. But he, he locates it in rebellion against a person, a loving divine being. Against thee, I rebelled. And he speaks of it, having mentioned the essence of it. He mentions the origin of it, this alienation of heart. And he makes this request in praying for pardon. He uses, again, three metaphors. He says, blot out my transgressions. And he seems to view them here as a long list of offenses. And he wants them erased. He says, I have a condemning record, but I, I want you to erase that, God. Then again, he says, wash. He says, this defiling robe this contaminating thing that is sticking to me. I want you to wash it. Wash me from my sin. And then again, he pictures it not only in those ways, but he pictures it as a fatal disease. When he says, make me clean or cleanse me from my sin, he uses a technical word in the Hebrew. It is used of the priest pronouncing the leper cleansed. And so here he is viewing his sin not only as a polluted robe, but not only as going beyond the boundary, as a condemning record, but he's viewing it as a fatal leprous disease. 
It's a part of him that needs cleansing. That's his prayer for pardon. Then he prays for purity of nature. Pardon of guilt and then purity of nature. In the fifth verse, Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And in verse 10, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within. Here the needs that he brings before God speaks to us of the origin of this sin. Uh, it does not mean that the marvelous process of conception is sinful in itself. But what he means is that each person, as they come into the world, as sons of fallen Adam, no longer are in the image of God, no longer are as man was created in the image of God, but rather they are in the image of fallen Adam. And as they come into the world, they come in with a self-centeredness, a rebelliousness at heart, an alienation at heart, a bias towards sin. It says, from the very time of my conception, there was implanted within me this twisted nature, this is what we call the doctrine of original sin, and this is one of the classic places in the Bible where it's brought out. It should be obvious to all. This is a fact. It need not be a doctrine. It's a fact of everyday occurrence. When people talk about all little children being good, I just wonder if they've ever had it. <laughs> and uh, only a superficial view of the humanity of morality can, can come up with the idea of people being basically good. Christ said, out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornication. All these come from within. Man's got heart trouble. And so David prays that God would create him in him a clean heart. David perhaps first realized the depths of this inner bias towards sin when he suddenly just was bowled over, when his passion suddenly flamed up in a moment and just completely overthrew him. And here one minute he has been as a man after God's own heart, and the next minute he's plunged headlong into sin. And he, he asked himself, how did I do this thing? How many times have you asked yourself something like that? What happened to me? How could I have done such a thing? And then he locates the cause deep within. He says, there's something wrong with me inside that just snuck up on me and led me into this. He's not excusing himself. You notice how he, he personally takes responsibility. My sin, my transgression. He's not excusing himself. Uh, he's not saying, God, you made me this way, therefore I'm not responsible. But what he's doing, he's spreading all of his need before God. He's saying, God, not only am I guilty, but I do it again. I'm just that way by nature. Something's wrong with me. You've got to help me. See, when a man begins to realize just how deep this sin is, not only does he sin, he is sin. Then he realizes that only God can help him. Any hope of self-reformation goes out the window. I, I've shared with some of you how this came home to me in my own life. God sent his Nathan around in my life some eight or ten years back when one night in the service as I drove back to flight training from here. I went to sleep at the wheel. And God's Nathan stood there as I woke up 
in terms of a great big sign that I was sitting in front of said the wages of sin is death. And uh, I said, uh huh. God's telling me I better change, I better shape up. And I tried. And uh, yet I kept being pulled back down into sin. And I first located the cause of it outside of myself. I blamed it on my compatriots. These fellows in the fight program are no good. I'm good. They're no good. They keep pulling me down. So I choose new friends of high moral caliber. And then I would uh, be able to do better. And so I chose new friends. And soon I found they were no good either. They pulled me down. I was good. They were no good. And I went through that process one more time, and finally I figured it out. One of them, it was me. And it wasn't a question of them pulling me down into it. It was a question of my being biased in that direction already. I did these things because I wanted to do them. I liked to do them. And then I was faced with a fantastic dilemma. How do you change what you like to do? You can't say, I don't like to do that anymore, when you do. I said, it's impossible to change your life and your dislike. And it is. And that's what David becomes conscious of, and he spreads his case. Just this desperate, God, you've got to do something. Notice his request. He says, God, I know that you demand not only external conformity with your law, but you demand inward truth. And remember Christ, and this should come home to some of you who perhaps haven't identified with David yet. Perhaps you sat there and you still thought that uh, my case is different from David's. Well, David says that God demands inner purity, truth in the inward part. You remember Christ said, the law of God is so broad that if a man looks after a woman to lust after in his heart, he has already committed adultery. He's broken that commandment. And then he goes on to say that if we hate in our heart, we've broken the commandment murder. God's law goes even to the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So you see, we are all like David. And David says, uh, God, I need a new creation done in me. Create in me a clean heart. Something I cannot do, you can do. I need a new nature. I need to have my works changed. I need to have different affections. I need a new want to. Not only do I need that inner purity, I need an inner power. I need a new strength to do thy will. As he says, and renew a right spirit within me. The term right spirit in the original would be steadfast spirit. Lord, I need inner power and I need inner purity. And he realizes that these can only come through the work of God's Holy Spirit within now, having prayed for pardon of guilt, for purity of nature, he prays for the presence of God. As he says in verse 8, Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Or as he prays in verse 11, Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. The need here... As soon as David had stepped into sin, he'd noticed something missing right away. The conscious presence of God. He noticed right away that no longer did he feel right within. He felt on edge. He, he describes how he felt in the 32nd Psalm. As he says this, My bones waxed old through 
his roaring all the day long. That within me there was a roaring, there was an uneasy feeling, there was a guilt feeling. All the day long I was completely conscious of no longer being in a right relationship with God. I missed the manifest presence of God, a sense of right being, a peace of spirit that his presence alone can give. I missed the joy of my salvation. So he requests that God would not take his Holy Spirit from him. He was conscious of the presence of God's Spirit that's making him feel so guilty. He was not conscious of the approval, yet he was conscious of the presence. And he was conscious of the danger that if he went on in this direction, that he could lose the presence of God forever. Now, if that doesn't jive with your theology, I'm sorry, it doesn't jive with mine either. But I, I declare one thing unto you, Presbyterians, very solemnly. We must never use those warnings in Scripture directed to believers about the danger of their going on in sin. We must never set those over against the comforts that are given about God keeping us. Don't ever set the perseverance of the saints over against the warnings of God and use this blessed truth of perseverance of a man going on, of a man once really being saved going on in this salvation. Don't ever use that to weaken the warnings of God to the man who's going on in sin. David was fearful of losing his salvation. Don't ever let this blessed truth of perseverance comfort you in your sin. I meet people like that all the time. Now, as he prays for restoration of the presence of God, he also asks to be held up. He says, God, unless you restore thy presence and unless you hold me up, I'll return to my sin. Now, the basis upon which these requests are urged is the next thing we come to. He makes this request for pardon of guilt, for purity of nature, for the presence of God to be restored in a conscious way. And he bases it all on three things. He bases it, first of all, on the propensity of God to be merciful. As he says in verses 1 and 2, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. He says, God, my sin is tremendous. But God, your mercy is even greater. You have a propensity to loving kindness. And therefore, I dare approach unto you as horrible as I've been, as far as I've sunk. I haven't sunk beyond the reach of your mercy and your loving kindness. And so I first base my plea for pardon and purity and presence on this. And then second, he says, I base it on the fact that I'm penitent. On the fact that I mean this about turning from my sin. You notice what he says in verse uh, 3. I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He says, forgive me, wash me, pardon me, for, he says, I am really repentant. Notice the elements of repentance. Number one, a confession of my guilt. He doesn't seek to in any way excuse his guilt. He says it's 
horrible God. Everything that you say about me is true. As a matter of fact, he justifies God in God's condemnation of him. He says uh, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. He says, God, you're holy. I'm the sinner. Everything that you say about me is true. I deserve punishment. I don't deserve restoration. I am a guilty sinner. That's a part of repentance, that acknowledgement. Then a second part of it is the turning from it unto God. He speaks, he says, God, my, I have a broken and contrite heart. And when he talks about broken, he's not just talking about broken for sin, but broken from sin. Real repentance involves a breaking with our sin. Repentance is to leave the sins we loved before and show that we in earnest grieve by doing them no more. And he says, God, he says, I know that you don't accept ritual as a substitute for the real thing, like so many people seem to think. God, I know it doesn't mean a thing for you to you for me to be in church giving my money, singing praises, working in a leadership position, if in my heart I'm not very humble and obedient before you. The sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite spirit. says, I realize that real repentance you require, but God, I am really repentant. And I approach you on that basis. And he mentions also the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. From this point on, I will seek to do your will. And he means it. Now, he urges these two things as to why he would expect his prayer to be answered. And yet, he knew better. So many of us don't know better, but David knew better. David knew that although God is loving, that he is also holy and just, and he cannot overlook sin, even though the sinner is repentant. If God's law is to have any meaning, the guilty soul must be punished. Says he will in no wise acquit the wicked. Die he, the sinner, or justice must. God has said the soul that sinneth it shall die. And God in justice must require that. David knew that. David knew that his repentance still didn't make a basis upon which God could overlook his law. Suppose you break a law and you go before the judge and say, Judge, I'm sorry I robbed that bank and I'm not going to do it anymore. I'm really sorry. I'm turning from it now. I want you to forgive me because I'm repentant. The judge says, Well, I'm glad you're repentant. I certainly wouldn't forgive you otherwise, but I can't forgive you for robbing the bank just because you're repentant. The law's got to be satisfied if it's to have any meaning. You'll have to be punished. David knew this, and so David doesn't locate his final appeal either in the mercy of God or his own sentence. He locates his final appeal in the provision of a sacrifice for sin that God has made. In verse 7, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Hyssop was a little plant that was used in the ceremonial observances that God had taught them to observe. God taught them that when they sinned, they were to bring a lamb to the priest, and they were to confess their sins over the head of that spotless lamb. 
and the lamb would be killed, and then this little branch would be dipped in the blood of that lamb and sprinkled on the person, and then God would forgive. The lamb, of course, points us to the great sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ one day would make. As the great commentator J.A. Alexander says, to purge with hyssop necessarily suggests the idea of purification founded on atonement. Not all the blood of beasts on Jewish altars slain could give the guilty conscience peace or take away the stain. But Christ the heavenly Lamb takes all our sins away, a sacrifice of nobler name and richer blood than they. And there we see how God can forgive the penitent sinner and yet be just. Because in the cross of Christ we see how God can save yet righteous be. Because in the cross of Christ we trace his justice and his wondrous grace. You notice what David doesn't mention. David doesn't say, God forgive me because of how good I was before I did this. He doesn't base it on anything he's done. He bases it on that great work that the Lord Jesus Christ one day would do in dying for his sin. You notice this reference to hyssop again, the dipping of the little plant into the blood and sprinkling on the individual speaks of personal appropriation. David was personally appropriating by faith this way that God had provided through his son being sacrificed yet to come so that sinners could be saved. David doesn't say, purge me with hyssop. He says, thou wilt purge me with hyssop in the original. He says, I know you will do this. You have promised, and I believe your promise. Personal appropriation of the work of Christ. How do you do that? You come to him and you say, just as I am, a sinner, just like you say, just as I am without one plea, except thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am, thou wilt receive, will welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, because thy promise, I believe, O Lamb of God, I come. That's how David approached. And that's the right approach. What shall we say about these things, beloved? There's a lesson here for each. There's a lesson in his promise. As he promises that from this point on, he says, I will witness and I will worship and I will walk with you. Then will I teach transgressors thy way and sinners shall be converted unto thee. When a man experiences the forgiveness of God, there is built within the impulse and the power to witness for God. And the desire to worship, as he says, turn, turn me and open my lips, then will I praise thee. And he says, I will continue to walk with you in a humble and contrite spirit. This is his promise. He realizes that's expected of all who are forgiven. And then he would have other lessons and like this. What about those here today who have obtained mercy of the Lord? And you know it, and you are joined his conscious, conscious presence. Number one, be joyful. Realize what a tremendous privilege is yours. But number two, be watchful. If David, the man after God's own heart, fell like this, cannot you? Then there would be those who are not conscious of having committed any flagrant transgressions. Even having gone through this, you still are not conscious of this. And perhaps in outward act, that's true. 
And yet, you have this same inner need, this same depravity of heart. As Luke Horn says, To me, a worm, a sinful clod, a rebel all forlorn, a fool, a traitor to my God, and of a traitor born. Now, that's the description of you. A sinful clod, a fool to God, a rebel of a traitor born. That sums up our situation before God. Your need is the same as David's. In the prayer that David prayed, God created me a clean heart, renew a right spirit. Christ provides. In the new covenant, he says, I will take the stony heart out of your flesh and give you a soft heart, a heart of flesh, and put my spirit within and cause you to walk in my statutes and judgments and do this. All that you need is in Christ Jesus. There would be those who are here today and who are deeply sensible of their guilt before God, whether it be a case of never having been a Christian or having slidden back into sin terribly. And this should be an encouragement to you. Don't seek to ease your guilt. Face up to it. And don't think of yourself as beyond God's mercy. David wasn't, and surely you're no greater sinner than David. And this should be a pattern for you as to how you can return to God in the same way that David did. You come to him and you say, God, I know you are a pardoning God. God, I am a penitent sinner. I mean business with you. I'm turning from it. I confess it. And then you simply take him at his promise. You put your faith in him to do for you what he offers to do for every sinner who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I claim the promise of forgiveness, of renewal within, of your presence manifest to me. Has David spoken to your heart? Has he pictured your need? Will you return in this pattern? We invite you to today.